we've been looking at what it means to live a counter a countercultural lifestyle. You know, as Christians, we swim against the tide. We go we go against the flow, and uh, the values we have are at odds with the values of this world. And so it's a counter-cultural lifestyle that we are asked to live. And the entire Sermon on the Mount is essentially uh, the Lord teaching us how to live in such a way that even though the floor of the culture doesn't live that way, we need to live that way. It's not a set of rules. It's not a set of religious regulations. It's, in fact, joy. Because living the way God would have us live is, is freedom. You know, once you've found the truth, you, you, you then go on to understand that the truth really has a way of making you free. And so to live in the truth is a joyous thing to do. It's, a, it's, it's most freeing for our hearts. So I want to first make this point that this entire Sermon on the Mount, and what, we're on part seven now, it's not really a set of how you should live. It's, it's a life principle. Jesus is saying, now that you are free, live like free people, set free. Uh, all right, so we've looked at some of the issues. We've looked at anger, we've looked at, looked at sexuality, we've looked at lust, we've looked at divorce and marriage last week. And this morning we look at something that very clearly reveals you to be a Christian. If you are a true Christian, it will reveal you to be a Christian. It will make you out to be a Christian. It will mark you out to be a Christian. I'm talking about our speech, the way we talk. I'm talking about our speech. Now let's take a closer look at the text and see how we may best understand what Jesus is trying to say to us here. It was Martin Lloyd-Jones who tells us that one of the ways people become Christians is from looking at the way that Christians walk in full authenticity of their faith. I'm not sure whether before you became a Christian, whether you had the chance to look at someone and then scratch your head and say, wow, I should so love to live like that person. And Lloyd-Jones is right, that the way some people come to Christ is from looking at the way some Christians express the authenticity of their faith in God. And part of that authenticity comes in the way she speaks. The way she speaks, the way a Christian speaks, bears the mark that she has found the truth. So this is the issue in front of us. So, so far in the Sermon on the Mount, we find that there were various issues, as I've said before, on anger, on lust, on adultery, on divorce. And the scribes and the Pharisees would often have a different take to this whole thing. And theirs would be a shallow and a legalistic interpretation. And you find the same thing here with regards to oath-taking, with, re with regards to vow-making. The Pharisees have a way of taking something and giving it a twist, making it shallow. Now, let's not forget that the Pharisees actually understand the scriptures very well. They know Exodus 20, you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. They know Deuteronomy 6, you shall fear the Lord, you shall serve him, and you shall swear by his name. They understand that. 
The end is in Leviticus 19.2. You shall not swear by the name of God falsely. Now, God gave us all these commands about oath-taking because he knows the human heart, how prone we are to exaggeration, how prone we are to lying, how prone we are to not make good our words, how prone we are to distorting the truth. So oath-taking and vow-making is something given by God to help human communities to grow vigor and strength within the community. But the scribes and the Pharisees, as I've said, legalistic as they always have been, they were more concerned with the letter of the law than with the spirit of the law. And so they thought to themselves that as long as they kept the letter of the law, they were fine. They were happy. And indeed they were. Now, remember for the last many weeks, we've talked about how that the Pharisees, somehow, no matter what, laws God gave, they were able to twist it and gave it a shallow, legalistic interpretation. Take adultery, for example. They thought that as long as they didn't sleep with someone else's wife, as long as they didn't physically commit adultery, that they were fine with God. But Jesus cuts it a few, notch, a few notches up. He says, if you look so much as a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. And the same with anger. And they thought that as long as they didn't kill anyone, they were fine. But Jesus says, the minute you become so vigorously resentful of your neighbor, of your brother, of your sister, you have murdered him. So Jesus cuts it up a few notches. And the Pharisees just pulls it down and makes it something legalistic. And so we saw about divorce last week, the same thing. So here again we see the scribes and the Pharisees taking this law about oath-making and oath-taking and giving it an interpretation through which they could squirm out through the back door and go on committing all those wicked deeds that they so love to commit and yet thought they weren't held accountable to God. And one way they did this was to confine this whole matter of oath-taking so narrowly that it's confined to matters of the court of law. As long as you didn't lie in the court of law, what is called perjury, then you're okay. So they got by committing all sorts of, speaking all sorts of falsehood, but in the court of law, they just would speak straight. And they thought that as long as you didn't commit the perjury, that you're all right. So they defined this matter of oath-taking in such a narrow way that they gave themselves a lot of room to break their promises and to break their words on other account. And they took liberty on what Scripture says by adding new laws about oath-taking. Uh, you love as you look at it. They begin to legislate what sort of oaths are binding and what sort of oaths aren't binding. And they taught that if you took an oath by the altar, you could break it didn't matter. That's not binding. But if you took an oath by the gift that sat on the altar, for some reason, if you knew what was good for you, you didn't break that oath. Because that oath that was sworn by the gift that lied there on the altar is binding. Now, don't ask me what that is. I don't have a clue what taking an oath upon the gift that lied on the altar means. 
this whole deal just looks arbitrary, whimsical almost. The temple, nothing. The gift by the temple, everything. The altar, nothing. The gift on the altar, everything. This was why in Matthew 23, Jesus poured scorn on the teachings of the scribes and Pharisees. To him, it was all shame and hypocrisy. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees were performing all sorts of mental gymnastics to protect themselves from being held accountable to God. Now, what were they thinking of? Just what were they thinking of? Did they think that simply by splitting hairs the way they did about what's binding, what is not binding, that they could get away from being held accountable to God? Surely God is sovereign over everything. And this is why Jesus says, why swear by heaven, heaven and think you can get away with it? Heaven is the throne of God. Why swear by the earth thinking you can get away with it? Earth is the footstool of God. Why swear by Jerusalem? Jerusalem is the city of the great king. And even if you should take an oath by your head, you cannot make one hair white or black. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that we could. We could go out there and buy a dye, a bottle of dye. <laughs> Jesus is not saying you can't make white hair black. He's not saying that. You couldn't make yourself old when you're young. You couldn't make yourself young when you're old. That's the meaning of that text. You can't make one hair white or black. The ebb and the flow of life is in the hand of the sovereign God. So Jesus proceeds to say, you can't change these things. So you, let a, you better let your yes be yes and your no be no. Now the first thing you're thinking of, I know you're sitting there, you're thinking, wow, if this is all true about oath-taking, then there should be no place for taking of oaths in our lives as, as Christians. And there have been Christians down through the centuries who have thought this way. The Anabaptists, for example, of the 16th century, they would never take an oath because they took this verse literally. Or the Quakers in our own day, the Society of Friends, they will resolutely not swear an affidavit before a commissioner of oaths. Even to this day, they wouldn't take an oath in a court of law. Now, we cannot accept this interpretation for a number of reasons. Number one, why would God go through all those detailed legislations about oath-taking if he never meant for us at some time in our lives to have the need to take an oath? Secondly, Scripture records for us numerous, numerous examples of godly men taking oaths. When Abraham sent his servant to look for a wife for Isaac, he extracted an oath from this servant before he left home. Jacob extracted an oath from Joseph. Joseph extracted an oath from his own brothers. Jonathan extracted an oath from David. Paul, on many occasions, both in Romans and Corinthians, swore by an oath. But what's more convincing is that our Lord Jesus, when he was put on trial, when the high priest says to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are indeed the Christ, 
Did Jesus go, oh, 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 you're couching this whole question in a form of an oath, I shall not answer you. No, he proceeded to answer the high priest. Meaning what? Meaning that there comes a time where an oath can be taken. Now I want to push it a little further. I'm, I'm on dangerous ground here, but I want to say it with great care that God himself takes an oath. But please, God does not take an oath the way we take an oath. There are numerous instances in the Bible where God swears upon his own holiness. Psalms 89, once for all I have sworn by my holiness. And my own favorite one is Amos 4.2, the sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness. There is a difference between us taking an oath and God taking an oath. God does not need to take an oath to try to appear more credible than he already is. God does not take an oath to make himself believable than he already is. Because scripture says God is not a man that he should lie. One thing God cannot do, he cannot lie, he does not lie. So when the Bible says he takes an oath upon his holiness, he condescended to take an oath so that when we see him taking an oath, we may be drawn to believe in him. You notice that God does not swear by his truthfulness. You notice that God does not swear by his wisdom. You notice that God does not swear by his power. Whenever God swears in the Bible, he swears by his holiness. Why? Because his holiness is the fullest, fullest expression of his utter, total perfection. So when he swears by his holiness, he swears by nothing greater than his absolute, total holiness that he is. But I need to affirm one more time in case you quote me and send me emails. God doesn't take an oath the way we take an oath. We take an oath to make ourselves appear more credible. God doesn't take an oath to make himself any more credible than he already is. So exactly what's the point of this message? Don't worry about him. So what exactly... That's <laughs> all right. So what exactly is the point of this... Of this of this passage. What exactly is Jesus teaching us here? Unlike the Pharisees, Jesus is going right into the heart of the matter. You could say he goes for the jugular. Jesus is saying in this entire passage, when you have finished exegeting this passage and reduced it to the core of what he teaches in this passage, the core of what he teaches here is very simple. He says, your words should be so believable, as it says, as it stands, that you would have no need to take an oath. If we needed to take an oath every time we speak, something is wrong, deeply flawed within us. So Jesus is saying you need not resort to oath-taking. He's saying that in verse 37, if you say yes, it's got to be yes. If you say no, it's got to be no. Anything more than that comes from the devil. 
And what does it mean when he says anything more than that comes from the devil? It could mean two things. It could mean from the evil of your natural deceitful heart or from the devil himself, whom Jesus describes as a liar and the father of liars. So Jesus is saying on your words alone, you should be believable. You know, I've always hated people using the phrase to be honest before they start speaking. If, if you've got to say to be honest, well, it means the times that you didn't use that phrase. <laughs> Shouldn't all our words all the time, in all places, at all time, be honest? If we are people of our words, vows aren't necessary, really. I like what John Stott says. John Stott says, if divorce is due to human heart-heartedness, then vow-making and oath-taking is due to human untruthfulness. Both were permitted by law. Neither was commanded. Neither should be necessary. So brilliant of Stott to put it that way. Stott also says our unadorned <coughs> words should be enough. I love that. Our unadorned words should be enough. Now, how may we look at this text in relation to our own lives today? Tom Wright. Tom Wright says, we live in a culture in which the truth is often the first casualty of interactions between human people. He says, we have an incredible elaborate system of lawyers, contracts, and notaries, and binding signatures to ensure that we do what we say we will do, at least when it is perceived to be important enough, and none of it makes people any more truthful. The sad reality is this. People don't believe that truth is an objective reality. And Wright says, we don't have to wonder why people have had such hard time telling the truth to each other, when in fact, majority of them don't even, can't even identify what truth is in the first place. You know, truth is scarce in our own time. Everyone is suspect. Businessmen, salespeople, sad to say doctors, ministers of the church, teachers, reporters, writers, we live in a world of lies and empty promises. Advertisers lie to make money. Politicians lie to get votes. Clever lawyers twist the truth, confuse the eyewitnesses, and throw up so much dust in the air that in the end, no one knows where the truth is. This week, I've had to go into the police station to vouch for the integrity of the character of one of us here with regards to a, a very solemn issue. And in that interviewing room, after I have finished and after this man has finished speaking, she turns to us and she says, I've heard your side of the story. And I've also heard her side of the story. But truth lies somewhere in the middle. She's made up her mind that nobody 
but nobody on this earth is capable of speaking truthfully. She's made up her mind. Nobody speaks the truth. Yes, I've heard your version, and I'm going to hear her version, but none of you are speaking the truth. The truth lies somewhere. We've got to search for it. I came out of the police station rather sad that on my words alone, I was not believed that I needed to prop up my words with props before I could be believed. But that's the world we live in. And in some sense, it is true. Because there is none of us here, there is not one of us here in this room who hasn't been guilty of the sin of duplicity. We've all learned how to use words to get our own way, to open some doors, to get others to agree with us. And all the time we believed that we haven't been dishonest. You know, when God gave the ninth commandment, you shall not lie, it reveals to us his total revulsion of lies and deception. You know, towards the very end of the Bible, God says that for liars, their place will be the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And then he adds, this is the second death. You know, lying is a sin that provokes God to judgment. This is why Jerome says, consider your every word and oath. And Pythagoras, the Greek philosopher and mathematician, when he was asked what people should have to do to be like God, he says, when you speak the truth. And Cicero, the Roman orator, says, nothing is sweeter than the light of truth. But let's take it from the word of God. The psalmist says that godly men are those who speak truth in their hearts. Psalms 15.2 And Solomon says in the book of Proverbs that lying lips, lying lips are an abomination unto the Lord. Proverbs 12.22 And Paul, very simply, in the same breath, classifies liars with murderers. And he says, neither of them shall inherit the kingdom of God. And our Lord Jesus says, I tell you, on judgment day, you will all have to give an account for every single word that fell from your lips. So when Jesus looks at the heart and he looks at the lips, how does he connect the two? There is no question. Jesus makes it very clear. Jesus says, every time you speak, you're speaking from not your lips, you're speaking from your heart. He says, from out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Every time, each time, all the time when the mouth speaks, the mouth speaks from what is down here in the heart. From out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Luke 6.45, Matthew 12.34. Now, if it is out of the heart that the mouth speaks, then really the only cure to wrong speaking is to have a spiritual heart transplant. Short of that, the mouth will always speak falsely unless the heart is right. So it's the heart that we must get to. How do we do this? 
I propose two ways for us this morning, and that's the rest of my message for you. Two ways to get our hearts right so that we always speak right. One, we need to realize that there is power in the words we speak. Words are not just words. Words have power in and of itself. There is something about speaking that you and I, that you and I haven't fully grasped. So our Lord is absolutely right that it is out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. There is no word that you speak that is not first birth in your heart. But there is a knot that ties the tongue to the heart. And that knot that ties the tongue to the heart can never be unraveled. No one has ever succeeded in unraveling that knot that ties the tongue to the heart. The heart thinks, the mouth speaks all the time every time. So a judgmental tongue comes from a self-righteous heart. A sharp tongue comes from a bitter heart. A grumbling tongue comes from a discontented heart. All the time there's this connection. On the other hand, a gracious tongue comes from a grateful heart. A truthful tongue comes from a faithful heart. And a reconciling tongue comes from a peacemaking heart. But let me go a step further, and it is this. When those words finally gush out from your heart, they are not insignificant, they are not harmless, they are not nothing. People have died because of words spoken. People have taken their own lives because of some words spoken. Words have brought about the death of marriages, the death of churches, the death of families, the death of friendship, the death of careers and future hopes. Death, words have brought about the deaths of some of these things. On the other hand, some people have lived on account of words spoken to them. Sour marriages have been sweetened by words. Divisive churches have been mended by words spoken. And many ordinary people have testified to this biblical truth. Celestial Holmes, for example, the actress, she says, we live by encouragement and we die without it, slowly, sadly, and angrily. And Mark Twain says, I can live off one good compliment for an entire week. And the Japanese proverb says, one kind word can warm three winter months. But again, let's see what the Word of God says. The Word of God says it so long ago, one good word can lift a load of anxiety from a man's heart. On the contrary, words bring destruction. And again, the Japanese people say the tongue is only six inches long. It can kill a man six feet tall. And they're right. See, words either build or tear down. You know, it is scary that words not only have tremendous power in and of itself, words, when spoken, have a way of bringing about reality. Words actually shape reality. 
Now listen to these frightening words from the Bible, like a fluttering sparrow or a darting swallow. An undeserved curse does not come to rest, meaning till it comes to rest on the head of the one who does the swearing. See, a curse that has been hurled on an innocent victim does not come to rest until it comes to rest on the head of the very one who speaks those words of curses. You know, some people are grumbling all the time. They're cursing and swearing all the time. They're mourning and they're groaning all the time. You know something? All those moans and all those groans actually come back and rest on their head. That's the teaching of Proverbs 26 too. Be careful. Your words have a way of shaping your life. The Proverbs are full of this teaching. Speak ill and misfortune will soon stand at your door. Speak blessing and you will be surrounded with good things. Now, if you think all that is horrendous, it gets even far more serious. And that is this. The Bible says life and death are in the power of the tongue. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. Now, can you think of anything more serious than life and death? Isn't that frightening that your word or your words have a way to bring life out of you? Or your words have a way to shrivel the life that is in you. Words can kill, says the scripture. And this is why the word of God says, be very slow to speak. So first, recognize the power of words. But the second thing is this, that would help us to use, not to use words wrongly, and that is this. We need to realize that only in accepting Jesus and his love for us will our words always be truthful and wholesome and healing. Now what do I mean by this? Only in accepting the love of Jesus will our words ever be truthful and healing. Let me try to explain what I mean. Whenever I use my words wrongly, it's because I do not believe in the gospel. Because if I fully believe in the gospel, I will not lie, I will not misrepresent, I will not exaggerate, I will not speak half-truths. The reason I do all this is because I don't fully believe that the gospel is truthful when it says God loves me so dearly that I don't fully understand. Let me try to explicate this for you. Take lying, for example. Why do I lie? I lie for human approval. Something I cannot bear not to have. You know, I'm a, I am an approval junkie. I cannot breathe just to know that somewhere on this planet there is someone who doesn't like me. It, it, it takes the confidence out of me, it takes the joy out of me. For example, if I'm asked, did you make that important phone call that you were supposed to make? Instantly, I lie. I say I did. I've made that call when I haven't. In fact, I haven't. I lie not because I'm a liar. I lie because speaking the truth, in that instance, for example, would put me in very poor light. 
would put me in a place where I could be rejected, where I could not be accepted. And I lie because at that moment, something else is more important than Jesus Christ. My functioning Savior, my functioning righteousness, my functioning redemption. I call these gospel thieves. They take the joy out of me. They make a liar out of me because my own self-acceptance from other people is so supremely important to me that I will lie just to be accepted by people. I might believe rightly that Jesus alone is my Savior, but in practice, I don't function like Jesus alone is my Savior. My image is my Savior. In practice, I believe that I'm saved through my through the human approval of other people in my life. So once again, why do I lie whenever I lie? I lie not because I'm a liar. I lie because deep in my heart, I have this grave need to be accepted, to be approved. And so I make up stories to look good. I make up stories to protect myself from being found out. So I have a functioning savior. My functioning savior is people's approval of me. That means so much to me that it shapes my words that I speak. It proves that I don't really believe that Jesus loves me. Because if I do, if I really believe that Jesus loves me, I will always speak the truth as it is, without fear of rejection or disapproval, because I have greatly been loved so greatly loved that it doesn't matter if people do not love me. But the reason that I'm an approval junkie is proof enough that I don't really believe the gospel. I may say that Jesus is my savior. I may say that I'm saved by the gospel, but in a snap, I go back to the default setting of my heart. And the default setting of my heart is self justification, self-salvation. God is speaking to me full-time about this. God is saying to me, you don't really believe me, do you? I'm sharing this with you with the hope that it rings true in your own heart, that you find in your heart an area of unbelief. Yes, you come to church. Yes, you read the Bible. Yes, you memorize the scriptures. But right there at the rock bottom, you don't really believe that you're so much love. You need, don't need to be defensive. You don't need to put up a cardboard cutout of yourself for others to see. You don't need that. You're much loved. And that is the gospel. So my second point is this. We lie because we don't really believe the gospel. See, the day all of us here fully believe the gospel, that's the day the church begins to make a difference. So all my attempts to try to use words truthfully will not work. Trying not to exaggerate will not work. Trying to be more careful with my words will not work. Trying not to speak a white lie will not work. The only way for me to stop using words wrongly is to slay the idol 
in my heart. And it's the idol of self-acceptance, of, 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 of human approval. And it's only one way that I can always speak forth rightly and truthfully. And that is to slay the idol of human approval in my heart. And there is only one way to slay that idol. And that is to believe the gospel. So what's the gospel in a nutshell? The gospel in a nutshell is simply this. You are dearly loved. Not because of what you did. Not because of who you are. Not because of anything beautiful that God finds in you. Nothing. You are loved simply because of who you are. God has set his heart to love you simply because you are you. That's all. He loves you for no other reason than because you are you. And he just loves you. Deliriously. Just loves you. That's the nutshell of the gospel. I am dearly, dearly loved by God. I don't have to twist my words. I don't have to cover up myself with half-truths. I just need to speak the truth at all times. I've been accepted by God. Long ago, there came into this world for the first time a man who always spoke the truth. And he spoke nothing but the truth. And whatever he spoke was only the truth. And that brought him into confrontation with all the lies that is found on this earth. And that confrontation came to a height at his trial, where false witnesses were called to fabricate evidences against him. And in the end, they crucified him. And today, the most treacherous words you can speak is to say that I don't need Jesus. You know that? The most treacherous lie you can say today is I don't need Jesus. When you say that, there is no more hope for you. And I hope there isn't anyone this morning who is committing that ultimate untruthfulness by saying that I don't need Jesus. I can make it on my own. So let's beware. He comes to speak the truth and he comes to save us from the, with the truth. And believing in him, we shall be saved. Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank you that you've spoken to us this day. And Father, you've touched a very raw nerve in each one of us. Father, which one of us in this room is innocent of duplicity? None of us, Father. We lie. We tell half-truths. We make things bigger than they are. All that to be recognized. All that to be thought well of. And Father, that just goes to show that we don't really believe you when you tell us that you love us utterly, perfectly, fully. Lord, it is the gospel alone that sets us free. So Father, I want to pray that you set us free with the gospel. It may take a long time because the default setting has been so gelled in our hearts that we go back to it all the time. Lord, save us from ourselves, we pray. We cannot try to be any more truthful 
We cannot try to not exaggerate. We found out that all that doesn't work. The only thing that works is to believe you that we are greatly loved and we don't have to be accepted by anyone else for acceptance. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.